Okay, I'm Rick Donlin. Thank you for being here. Uh, here is our topic. We're going to talk about faith versus fear. Um, I work at a place uh, called Resurrection Health, and this is about half of the people. We have, for about 20 years now, in the inner city of Memphis, have been providing primary health care in underserved areas in a city that's got lots of people without access to primary medical care. Um, so this is one of the health centers and some of the staff there. We provide a lot of patient care, uh, tens of thousands. Uh, over the, honestly, over the last 21 years, the work that we've been associated with has provided probably close to 2 million primary care visits, and has become um, that work has become the largest primary care work in our city. We, we began about 12 or 14 years ago to move into the inner city communities, and so many of us, most of us live in the low income, primarily African-American and Latino neighborhoods where we've had health centers. And we also began about that same time in the early 2000s to plant house churches. And uh, I'll talk with you a little bit more about that. Um, we've been for now about seven years training young physicians. So we have a three year family medicine training program where we recruit um, young doctors from across the country to live in these same communities that I mentioned and to learn health care with us and ideally to become equipped to be to do similar work in other cities or to go to unreached people groups around the world. And so the last picture there on the right, uh, Alan Bach is actually here in the room. This was the send off three or four weeks ago because Lindsay and Alan are uh, an example of people who've come to Memphis for a time and worked uh, meaningfully, have been involved in church planning, disciple making, and are now on their way to language training eventually to, to North Africa. And there's been many people in our circles that have done that. So all that is to sort of give you background. Um, I hope that your same point of view is that there has been an appearing of a great glorious king, that the central event of human history happened on a Friday where Jesus Christ offered himself for all of humanity and was three days after that raised from the dead and it will return again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Amen? Okay, good. We're together on that so far. That's good. Okay. Um, the king has appeared once. The king will appear a second time. We live in between these two advents. And in the meantime, we are bringing his kingdom and his will on earth the way it is in heaven not perfectly. We're not utopians. We're not going to bring the kingdom of Jesus fully till he returns. But part of the life of a disciple is to um, bring the kingdom values of Jesus wherever they are and bring the authority of Jesus' kingdom to every part of the world because that we know from the Bible that's what's going to happen. So if you're here for that reason, and this talk is part of a sort of missionary preparing track of the conference, and hopefully most of you are young people who are or many of you are young people who are on the preparing. We're, we want you to know, the conference wants you to know, that there are fearful things associated with that. That that's hard. Uh, in a great way, in a wouldn't-do-anything-else kind of way, but in, in a fear-inspiring way. And I'm making a confession now that I'm kind of a fearful person. And uh, I asked my wife as I was preparing for this talk if she thought that were true. She said, I'm not, not sure, but she's wrong. I'm, I'm a scaredy cat. So I'm going to tell you about some of my own fearful experiences. I'm going to ask you to think about some of your fearful experiences. One of them I have is when my technology goes out in the middle of a talk. Yeah. All right. Um, everything that you see, the T-shirts, the uh, 
towering display that we have on the second floor. The slides are done by Jason Stevens, who's probably not in the room. Um, oh, is he? Yeah, I'm sorry. He's there lurking back there so he can get some perfect photographs of what's happening. So um, if you have a ministry or a work that you want people to engage with, with their imaginations, Jason's the guy to talk to. He, he's worked with us in, for years in Memphis, but is also working in other places, too. So, all right. So you know what fear is, right? I think you do. All right. And I was I, I had a lot of time to think about this. This topic was assigned to me. And I had a lot of time to think about what I was afraid of, and I asked a lot of people what they were afraid of. And so, um, this is kind of a weird thing about it. Like, fear is not entirely objective. Meaning, you can be in a really, really scary, objectively dangerous, risky thing and not be that afraid, right? That, that might be either really courageous or really stupid, one or the other. And you can be in a place that's not really particularly dangerous or scary or fear-enticing, but you could be really scared. Okay? Um, it's, it's not altogether connected with objectivity, but it's real and it's exceedingly powerful. Okay? Fear is, we're going to say this in a minute, it's one of the principal weapons of demons, of the devil. Second only to deception. And usually... The two are working together. That's the language of the enemy and the accuser, is to incite lies and to make you afraid. So there's a spectrum, right? Right now, I hope nobody except the person who's speaking to you is afraid right now. Hopefully you're generally at ease. And at the end is terror, right? Surely nobody here is in terror. Anxiety is kind of in the middle, right? Maybe more to the left side of the... Anxiety, for me, is... And again, we're not using clinical terms. There are people with DSM-5 anxiety and much of the stuff that I'm saying today isn't applicable entirely to people who have really big issues in these areas. But we all get anxious. We all get fearful. The Bible talks a lot about both. So anxiety is more sort of a feeling of dread that you've all had. And then another big factor is how long it happens. Okay, so I want... Bungee jumped. And I was, I was about to wet myself, I was so afraid. But it was over in 30 seconds. Right? Sheer terror for a very brief time, and then it was gone. And, and then there's people who live in difficult places for long periods of time, and even if the difficulties and the fear is not super intense all the time, the longer you're in a chronically fear-causing um, situation, the more harm it can do to you or the more it can work in your head. Okay, so I want you now, if you were willing, to think about a time in your life when you were really scared. Okay, and again, not ideally a short period of time, not when you rode a roller coaster or you watched that final episode of Stranger Things or whatever might have made you that kind of scared. Like, I mean scared. And, and maybe scared for a time. You got it? Are you thinking about it? It occurred to me that there might be people in this room who don't, don't actually have anything to point to. I, I don't know if that's true or not. I, don't, I think the first time it happened to me, I was probably 19 or 20, so maybe, maybe not. I'm going to tell you about my species of fear. Okay, I'm going I'm to describe three times in my life and 
they kind of overlap, but what I hope is after these, you'll be able to tell me whether you think what you were just thinking about falls into, into one of these three things. So I want to tell you stories. This is Dr. Edamagama, who's much older now in this picture. But when I met him, I was a second-year medical student at LSU in New Orleans, my hometown. And Edda was a Ghanaian from Ghana. He was a physician who'd graduated from medical school in Ghana. He came to the U.S., eventually got a, did a U.S. residency in internal medicine and a hemonc fellowship. And he's a hematology-oncology doctor in Springfield, Illinois now. But when I was a fourth-year medical student, they used to give away money through the Reader's Digest to fourth-year medical students who wanted to do missionary trips overseas. You could go for two months and... Reader's Digest through the medical assistance program would give these scholarships. And I didn't, I wanted to go because I thought I wanted to learn about medical missions. I'd done a few little short term things in college, always with teams. And Adam hooked me up in his home country of Ghana. So the first thing that happened is I landed in the Accra International Airport, and there were actually three different groups of people who were there to collect me. And I didn't know who to go with. I didn't know who would have the best place for me to go to, right? So there was a little bit of turmoil there. And, and then I was jet-lagged, and they took me out to the village. And this is a picture where I was smiling, but they put me in African garb for church. And um, I didn't sleep at all that night. I was just really nervous. And these roosters in the real world, they crow all night long. And I wasn't exactly sure how it was going to go, because I'm a scaredy cat, basically. Okay. And we spent a little bit of time back in the, in the medical campus in Accra at Kalebu, the training, uh, training hospital in the city. But I was really sent out to the Agogo Mission Hospital in the northern part of the country. It was a very rural part. And I had a sort of a notion of what missions was going to be like at that time, at age, whatever I was, 25 or 6 but when I got there, the missionary surgeon who ran the place was a brilliant woman from Switzerland, but she didn't have much use for an American medical student who was going to be there for eight weeks. Not much use at all. And I had to struggle to learn how they did things in the hospital, and I wasn't being coddled the way an American medical student is used to. And I mentioned I was also jet-lagging and scared. And so Anyway, it, was, it wasn't the situation I thought it was going to be, and I was... Not really happy about it. Then about three weeks in, I got sick. And I got enteric fever. Body aches and headache and usually typhoid. So the really nice African doctors gave me some ampicillin. It didn't change things. I was scared. My stomach got hurting more. And finally they decided, like, this isn't breaking after quite a while. And they said, we're going to give you chloramphenicol. I don't even know if they even teach people about chloramphenicol anymore. All I knew from LSU Medical School is that it caused aplastic anemia. <laughs> that they were going to cure me of typhoid and then I was going to die because my entire bone marrow would be wiped out. <laughs> okay. So, there it was. Every dose I took, I just imagined my bone marrow disappearing. All right, so this is a story about when I was afraid for weeks at a time because I was out of control. I didn't have control over what was happening. It wasn't going the way I thought it was going to go. It wasn't going according to a sort of a romantic notion of what a missions experience would be. 
And I was chronically fearful the entire time. Story number two. Closely thereafter. This is the graduation picture from fourth year medical school. And I matched at a combined internal medicine pediatrics program in Memphis. And the first night in June of 1990, I was put in the emergency department at our county safety net hospital called Regional One Health. At that time, it was called the Med. And there was a nice fellow who was moonlighting who helped me till about 11, and then he left. And so the first night of me really being a doctor at all, I was responsible for seeing all these patients in the emergency department, not in the really sick emergency department, but I didn't know what I was doing. So I was, I had, you know, I'd written some prescriptions before. There's a, there's a cataclysmic difference between being a medical student and being an intern, right? Like it's just not even close to the same. Some of our interns in the back right now, they understand what we're talking about. All right, so that went on for a little while, and then I got put on a ward team, and they gave me like 14 patients. We were on call every fourth night. There were no caps or no naps with graham crackers like the residents get nowadays. Okay. This is not what the beeper looked like back then. It was, it was actually a radio receiver, and so you would... You would be walking around full of anxiety, and it would screech, and then a person's voice would come across. It would say, call E-150, 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 and you just, <laughs> man, just adrenal glands are going, <sighs> all right? Um, you would get checkout at night on the nights you were on call, and you would be responsible for your patients, and then literally a quarter of the rest of the patients in the hospital, and the Poor saps who's signing out to you is just, you know, they're giving you a sentence of information and just trying to get out. And, and then all night long, the calls are coming. And you're not sure if you know what to do or how to do it. And you're getting admissions all the time. For weeks and months, I was, I was afraid. Okay. Next up, the VA Medical Center and the ICU. And again, they used to leave interns in the ICU at night alone. You would make rounds before everybody left, before all the real doctors left, and they would tell you about all these people on ventilators and drips and all this stuff, and then kind of see you in the morning. I remember I went to my call room, and I set that anxiety-causing beeper thing next to me, and I stared at it. I finally nodded off, and it went off in the middle of the night, and one of these veterans was trying to die. They were beginning to code. And I walked in, and they looked at me, and I looked back at them, and I said, that man needs a doctor. (laughs) That is a true story. And there were nurses at the VA until I was a fourth year and beyond who would repeat that story whenever I would come around, okay? I knew that I didn't know what I was doing. I knew that I could kill a patient if I wasn't careful. I knew that the hospital police one day were going to come in and cuff me and take me out for not really being a doctor. I was an imposter, which really was my fear of humiliation. When it all came down to it, I didn't want people to know that I was stupid or that I wasn't competent third species attributed to this guy okay Chuck Chuck uh, has been a speaker here at the conference has been a plenary speaker before 
family medicine doctor who worked for years in the um, disputed province of Kashmir between India and Pakistan, went in from both sides over a period of time, suffered a great deal, had a lot of persecution. Um, his wife lost a baby uh, when she got dengue fever during pregnancy, just a lot of difficulties. But while they were there, they saw the Holy Spirit moving and they saw real deal Muslim background believers putting their faith in Jesus and and um, the beginnings of a church planting movement even in Kashmir. And they came back after four very difficult years to Memphis, his hometown, where we were in the early years of putting together our work. And I hired him to work half-time seeing patients with us and half-time to consult with, with us to help us figure out what we were not doing to be fruitful in Memphis at the time. So Chuck was part of the notion of us moving into the communities um, so again, a picture of the house churches. He was part of the impetus to start doing house church instead of traditional church. Those were two things. And the third thing that he really pushed us on was our approach to medical missions. And we were doing at that time what I would consider to be traditional medical missions to the Caribbean, to Latin America, places where the church is established. Typically, you, you work with a church, with a pastor who's preaching while you're treating. And Chuck pointed out to us that The fact that he was a physician was one of the only reasons he was able to stay in Kashmir and that we in Memphis should concentrate our efforts, our medical efforts, on places where there were no churches and there were no disciples. So the neighborhood stuff was going pretty good and the church stuff was going pretty good, so I suggested to him that he he pick a country for us. And he, of course, only wanted something in a difficult area. And in the year 2000, that's what he picked for us. There were already a group of young missionaries working among the um, Uzbek speakers of northern Afghanistan. When he proposed this in um, late 2000, it sounded kind of cool. That's the way fear is, right? Like if it's distant and it's you're going to ride a roller coaster later, that sounds kind of cool. Until it starts going click, 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 click. Okay, so we got on the plane to go. And I began to have anxiety at that point because the Taliban were running the country. Osama bin Laden was known to live there. There were rumors that Westerners had prices on their heads. Chuck was fearless because he'd been in many difficult places before. But we started off badly. We got on a Pakistan International Airways plane that had a kind of a sketchy landing. And then we were in Islamabad, which... You can see, hopefully you can see, and we were supposed to take another PIA plane to Peshawar, but PIA literally went out of business that week, (laughs) having cashed our check for the flight, of course. So Chuck found a way to get us across the country to Peshawar, where we were supposed to pick up entry visas to Afghanistan and the Taliban offices, but when we presented there, we were initially refused. We refused a second day. We went and found how horrible things were going for the Afghan refugees who were living in Pakistan at the time. And I secretly began to hope that we would never get our visas and that I would be able to go back home and say, hey, man, I tried. You know, we tried to get into Afghanistan, but it wasn't the Lord's will. So, After about the fourth day where I was really already planning to go home, we went back in and we got taken to the back and we got interrogated by an intelligence officer And even though I tried to be surly and unhelpful, he gave us visas. (laughs) We had to go through the Khyber Pass, which Alexander the Great and 
um, Genghis Khan and all of these historic people, Darius the Persian, have come through because this part of Afghanistan is the link between the, the east and the subcontinent of India. And there had been and still is, frankly, 30 years of warfare among Mujahideen, the communist government that was supported by the Soviets for a time and all of the resistance to that the Americans supported and the place had just been obliterated. The road, which was only 40 miles, should have taken an hour. It took us six or seven hours up and down the mountains. And Chuck, who sort of can be pretty annoying, actually, had an altimeter watch, and he would say about every five seconds, go, now we're at 3,262 feet, and just kept this running thing. Again, I'm just trying to control my bowels at this point. (laughs) I'm so scared. So much death and violence. The airport in Kabul when we got there, these are the checkpoint guys. Like, you just check. You, you think it sounds cool, but I, it is not cool to go to a checkpoint with the Taliban, even if you've got a visa. The Kabul airport in uh, 2001, this was uh, April of 2001, still had the wreckage of Soviet aircraft along the, uh, along the runways. It was, it was like a Mad Max movie. Just complete culture shock for me. And again, just fear, overwhelming fear. So this is the species of fear that's just about physical harm or suffering. Maybe you could shoehorn loss in there, too, because part of the time I was thinking, after they cut off my head, my wife and children will be without a husband and father. I was, I was physically afraid. All right, so, again, there's some overlap, but I wonder, thinking back on your thing that I asked you to question in your own head about what you were afraid of, would you characterize that as first loss of control? There's a nod. Has anybody got the courage to raise a hand? And loss of control, fearful, fearful. Couple three over here. All right. Who's afraid of humiliation? Some honest, proud people in the crowd. Good. Okay. Who's just afraid of harm and suffering and difficulty? Yeah. You've been somewhere where they actually kill people. Yeah. Okay. We were talking with our missionaries who work among the Somalis, and he was telling me that when he gets far out into the rural parts, Damon, into the rural parts, he, he sometimes worries, even with his, he's got a guy he trusts who helps us, and it's even better language. He has very good Somali language, but he just gets nervous when he's out, really far out. And I said, I guess you're worried, like maybe they'll just put a bullet in your head. He said, no, that would be better. I'm afraid they're going to slowly cut my head off. That's what they've done before. Okay. Just out of curiosity, does anybody have something that they thought about that was really sustained fear that doesn't fall into one or more of those categories? Okay. All right, so I think we know, most of us know, that when you're afraid, things happen in your body, right? You, your heart starts beating faster, blood gets re-diverted, you're brain moves faster, your pupils get bigger, your adrenal glands start, as we said earlier, and 
Um, this is the classic at its height is characterized as either flight or fight. Okay, and so those physiologic things are happening along with huge spiritual things that are happening when we're afraid. And conflict is easier to happen when you're afraid. You're edgier and you're more likely to be combative. And there can be an almost uncontrollable desire to leave, to get away from what's making you afraid. And at its most powerful, when it's sort of gaining energy from itself, okay, because the enemy is feeding you with these lies about what's going to happen to you, it can be almost devastating. Okay. And, again, the, the reason we're having these talks like this at the conference is this is inevitable. Okay? The Hawaiian Islands were reached with the gospel in the 19th century. There are relatively, basically, no places left if our goal is to get Jesus' glory among all people, tribes, nations, and tongues that are not difficult. Maybe, maybe you can find a place that's not difficult, but almost all of these places, they don't want you there. The enemy is bent against you being there. There are laws. It's just, there's no easy places left. Any place you go to fulfill this great commi- commission is going to be dangerous, fear-inspiring. Okay, so shifting to the second half of our topic is faith, okay? And this is the Bible version, textbook definition of faith from Hebrews 11. In this NIV version, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see, which is a great definition. It's followed by a a long litany of people who behaved in this way. But I just, I don't know exactly how to communicate the reality that faith is not just some, when you rely on your faith, you're not relying on just some nebulous thing out there. Like, faith has to have real things that you believe to be true. Okay? To have Christian faith, you actually have to have eyes to see something that seems to be denied by everything around you and its reality. Okay? I was struggling to believe in the heart of Afghanistan in 2001 that Jesus Christ is Lord of Afghanistan, that there will be Hazaras and Tajiks and Imok and Uzbek speakers before the throne of Jesus that we read about in Revelation 5 and 7. It just looked to me like a place where people killed themselves and others. We don't just have faith. We're not just faith-based. We have to have faith in something in particular. Like, we have to believe truth instead of lies. We have to believe truth that's upside down from what our regular eyes see. That's why the New Testament says over and over again, that which is temporary is visible. That which is unseen is eternal. Jesus says it in a bunch of different ways. It can't be passive. It can't, honestly, for long, rely on something in the past. Faith is a dynamic thing that's going on in conversation in your heart while you're afraid. And when the conversation stops, that's when you're in trouble. 
we must know and love and even memorize the Bible. Okay? This is a fear that many of us have. Of my, I'm in my early 50s, that our younger generation of Christians are not biblically literate, that they don't know and love the Bible, that they, they aren't able to understand. This is a problem even our highly committed people in our house church network in Memphis. We, we find even among some of our house church leaders who are great people, people of faith, people who take risks, that, it's, that sometimes there's a frightening level of biblical illiteracy. If that's the reality for someone in this room, like the best, most crucial thing you could do, I really believe this, is learn how to read and and believe and obey the Bible. Not just the parts of the Bible you like, okay? This is not a cafeteria where you go to the part of the cafeteria that you like. The way the Holy Spirit gave us the Bible, you've got to eat your vegetables too. They're good for you. I had to learn to understand, to a degree, Hebrew poetry, to understand and begin to um, love the Psalms. But it was well worth it. The Psalms are unbelievably helpful when one is afraid. Because half of them are Davidic, written by David, and therefore they have all manner of application to Jesus himself. Faith in something, in something specific, in the truth is what's going to win. Okay, so totally hokey Sunday school picture. Halloween style picture. I don't care. All right. You have an enemy of your soul. An enemy, if you're married, of your marriage, of your family. Like a really powerful person or persons who know you, who know your family, who know your past sins, who know your proclivities and weaknesses, who knows what you're afraid of, and will come after you. You are commanded to resist him with the truth. I actually thought about finding pictures of people who had dart arrows lodged in their flesh. Because that's the picture, right, from the, the Ephesians 6 passage of the armor of God. Like, this shield of faith, which the Bible can be wielded as a shield in countless ways, is literally taking the fiery darts of the enemy that are shot, intended to pierce your liver. Okay. This is a Shakespeare quote. Be stirring as the time, be fire with fire, threaten the threatener, and outface the brow of bragging horror. This is Shakespeare's version of fighting fire with fire. The most effective faith fighters fight fire with fire. Okay, let, me, let me try to explain what I mean by that. Um, I don't know anything about firefighting, but I know sometimes, don't they? Firefighters start fires to stop fires. Somebody's nodding over here. Okay, good. I'm glad. All right, here's, uh, here's Martin Luther. 
I wish I could have a better picture for you, but if you Google Martin Luther and the devil, there's a limited number of pictures available to you. <laughs> right. So Luther is famous, whether you believe in this sort of thing or not, I totally do, famous for having encounters with evil and even with the devil himself. There's a very famous story that he, Luther threw his inkwell at the devil. So I don't know if he hit him or not, but there's a place in Germany where you can go and there's an ink stain, which you know somebody like 40 years ago threw some ink on there. So. <laughs> But all right, anyway, um, this is what Luther said, and this is, this is fighting fire with fire. The he and this is the devil. If the devil does not stop to vex me, but faces me with my sins, I reply, Dear devil, I have heard the record, but I have committed far more sins, which do not even stand in your record. Put them down too. Right? And the rest of the story is, and I have a Savior who hung on a cross and whose blood initiated a new covenant that covers once and for all every sin that you could ever throw in my face. And he will be your downfall. Bam! <laughs> this is what I'm going to argue for the next 20 minutes with you. When I am afraid because I'm out of control, fighting fire is, oh yeah, I'm way out of control. I got no control. But I know who does. I'm afraid of being humiliated. Well, I am. I should be humiliated. I'm a piece of you know what. But I am beloved. And I have a king who stands in my place. And who, who is used to being humiliated himself. And who in the end has been glorified. And I too will be because I have faith in him. And you can kill my body. But I'll rise again. Because of Jesus. Luther fights with truth that centers on Jesus. And that's the way to fight. Faith, faith fight fear. Faith fighting fear. Say that three times. Alright. So, again, here's, here's, then, here's this walking through what I just said to you in summary. This is the truth of Colossians 1. And I, I don't I like picked and then erased and switched out these passages. This is the beauty of the Bible. It's so full of weapons. The shield of faith is defensive. The only weapon in the armory of the armor of God that's offensive is the word of God. And it, it can be wielded so many different ways. So these are just some suggestions. I'm not saying memorize this. I'm just saying this is a way to fight. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I'm not in control, but Jesus Christ is. And in him we were chosen. Do you believe it? That, that's the ultimate thing I've found. When the enemies really got me on the ropes, I start to doubt my salvation. That's, that's, that's how much despair that he wants to pile on us. But it's not true. In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Nothing is going to happen. Nothing. In a craw, in a hospital when you're an intern, in Afghanistan, or any place that you're going to be, nothing is going to happen outside of him who works everything in conformity to his will. 
Do you believe it? This is the one you do have memorized, I hope. It's true. All things, good things, bad things. This isn't a prosperity gospel. Like, we could have been killed in Afghanistan, right? I probably should have been cuffed and taken out of the hospital that time. Bad things can happen, but all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Wherever you are, you're that person. Inner city Philadelphia, Algeria, nothing that's going to happen to us, to the person of faith, faith in these promises, is outside of the providence of God. Okay, so, humiliation's a little different. But here's some weapons. This is a long one, I'm sorry. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I didn't want people to know that I was a bad doctor. Even though I was, I don't know. What somebody should have done in that case is come up and put their arm around me and say, Hey, you know how you feel like you're going to kill somebody every minute? You know how you just, the beeper makes you pee on yourself a little bit every time? Like, that's normal. That happened to me when I was an intern. It's, it's okay. You're going to be okay. Like, I wish somebody would have done that, but they didn't. But I was so invested in people thinking much of me. And, again, the, the Christian message is, is Jesus Christ becomes nothing and urges that of his disciples and eventually he will become everything. He has filled everything in every way. But I was too worried about my reputation, I think. Still am. In your relationship with one another, you know this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human nature. So that's where we stopped it. Like, this is our pattern when we are fearing that we are incompetent and that people will know us to be less than we wish. We are imitators of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who was maligned, who was um, trapped, who was betrayed, who was slandered, who came to his own, but his own did not receive him. This, this, he says to you, will happen. This is the way they treat me. This is the way they'll treat you. If they call the master of the house, Beelzebub, how much more are the members of his household? Like, this is our lot for now. To be humiliated. Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here, do you have eyes to see this? For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Um, a couple of years ago, I got publicly, in our city, I got fired. Like, in the newspaper. And, and even with some improper, untrue suggestions about why I got fired. And it was, it was humiliating. 
Um, in, in it was some betrayal. In it was an, in some injustice. Okay. I, I'm not at a place yet where I'm ready to say I'm glad it happened to me, but I can say that in a very, very small way, I understand in a very, very small way the suffering of Jesus in a way I did not before because I was humiliated and I was betrayed. And if the world hated him, it's going to hate me too. If you're going to be a missionary, you're, you're, you're painting a target on your front and then you're handing the brush to someone to paint a target on your back. Which sounds terrible, except that the example of Jesus is complete humiliation and jeering and rejection and mockery and hatred before (coughs) resurrection from the dead and glory that is never going to ever, ever fade. Lastly, I see Apostle Paul talking about his own ministry, but this is true for you too. This is this is the imposter syndrome. Like I'm not competent, I'm not competent to be a doctor. Was my thought. I'm not competent to be a CEO. I'm not competent to to take on healthcare injustice or to send these young earnest doctors to into harm's way. I don't. I don't. I don't have those competencies. I don't have to. We don't have to. You're not competent to take the gospel to Algeria. If we're we're counting on your competence, it's not going to happen. Not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. In that fear of humiliation, of failure, of shame, an identification with Jesus who's experienced the same things, and a recognition that Every possibility we have for winning is entirely from him. In our humility, we get, we get to be the recipients of the very Holy Spirit of God to give us the power to do what he and only he can do. If we believe it. All right, lastly. Um, and again, I, I think... Of the three times I told you about my fears, the Afghanistan fears were the most intense and sustained intense. Like the sort of thing where you wake up if you slept at all and for a second you forget that you're where you are and then you remember it again and it just is very difficult. So um, this is Jesus. And Chuck Cheatham used this and made, it, made me mad. I'll tell you about that in just a second. But anyway, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worthy. You're worth more than many sparrows. So the story is, it's a joke I've told many times. I'm sorry if you've heard it before. But we, we did get to the Kabul airport and we were to, sh- to fly to Mazari Sharif in the north of Afghanistan. And the Taliban had a, a flight ceiling where you couldn't go high. And we, we were on a little missionary aviation fellowship airplane. It's, it's called something else in that part of the world. But um, we're on the tarmac with divots everywhere and 
broken down jets everywhere and me just trying not to poop on myself. And a guy comes up to me and asks me how much I weigh. And I ask him, why do you want to know how much I weigh? He said, well, we're deciding how much fuel to put in the plane. So I heard a comedian talk about this before. I said, I weigh 500 pounds. (laughs) Fill it up. (laughs) And he pointed out that there are mountains around Kabul and that if the plane is overweighted, we might not make the over the mountain. And I said, I weigh 212, I think, about. (laughs) How much gas do you need for that? we, were, we took off in this little plane that was like a pack of gum with a couple of propellers on it, right? The pilot, there were four of us, gave us helmets. You know, I laugh about U.S. They're like, this is how you use a seatbelt. What a ridiculous thing. This guy said, the crash helmet's there, the survival kit's under there. All I said was, Mama. <laughs> and we taxi and we start to climb. And it does not look to me like we're going to clear the mountain. And I should have said 210 or whatever, but Cheatham, who's in front of me, Dr. Chuck, I'm sorry, helmet on, and he just nods back and starts to fall asleep. (laughs) And I reached back from here and popped him in the side of the head. And I said, I hope you'll pardon my, I said, if we're going to die, you're damn well going to be awake for it. (laughs) And he said, Rick, don't you know that sparrows sold for two pennies and not one falls to the ground without your father knowing it? But he didn't say it in a way to build me up. He said it in a way to kind of make me feel bad. (laughs) So I said, I don't want to hear the Bible right now. Which means I wasn't resting on faith, right? Okay. Um, now, in the same section in the Gospels, Jesus says this. Um, okay, now, this is Job. This is nice. In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. You've heard this before. It's absolutely true. Until God is through with you, you're bulletproof. Right? And he doesn't tell you when you're, he's through or not. So, But if, if you've seen the movie before, you don't get all fired up or worried about when the conflict's building. Like, the end of your story, whatever it is, is you win. Like, if you maintain your faith in Jesus, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. He will reward his people, especially who were courageous. Like, you can't lose. He's in control of everything. Now, he does say this. You could lose your life, but don't be afraid. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do more. But I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's not the devil he's talking about. That's, that's his father. This is the healthy fear of God. The worst that they can do is kill your body. Let's hope they don't. All right. And this is, this is the one that I recommend to you to memorize. This has gotten me through everything from organic chemistry to the MCATs to, to living in a town with a Taliban garrison. This is pure spiritual gold. Isaiah 41.10. And you can appropriate this promise. This is 
a promise for the followers of Jesus in the New Covenant. You, through Jesus, are sons and daughters of Abraham, according to the New Testament. The promises to Israel are the promises to you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I've pulled that one back and every little phrase thought it through and reflected on it. And it is absolute oxygen to the spiritual lungs when you need it. Because I do fear and I do dismay. I get dismayed so easily. Almost through. Isaiah 41.10, you should memorize it. Okay, so it's not enough, I know you understand this, but, and I've sort of said this already, but it's not enough just to like objectively know this. Like you, you, this happens in real time, it happens in real life, it happens when you're tired and when you're worn down and when you're angry and hungry. And like this requires constant exercise. Faith requires conditioning and, and a constant activity. You've got to watch and pray. Okay, so... This quote actually is Jesus in Gethsemane. He's gone to pray before he is about to face his most difficult time. And he's taken his three favorite guys with him. And they're supposed to be watching with him. And you know the story. They're sleeping. And he's out there by himself having this surrender to the Lord for the final time in intimacy. And comes back and they're sleeping. And he tells them, watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. You can hear in Louisville, Kentucky, an urging from an earnest speaker for you to have faith and use it to conquer fear. But if you don't pray and work in those ends, you won't be able to do it when the time comes. And those guys are the example. Okay, An hour before this, Peter says, Lord, even if I have to go to jail or death with you, I'm going to do it. And all the rest of them said the same thing. And in a matter of moments, fear of physical harm is going to have most of them take off and abandon him. And then Peter is going to sit in the, in the courtyard waiting to see what happens. And he's going to get scared when a servant girl approaches him and tries to shame, and shame him into who he is and denies Jesus. Like, we have to have spiritual disciplines. We have to watch. We have to pray. Combining the truth of God's word with prayer, it's just, it's got to be the DNA of missionaries. Suffering, fear inducing events are inevitable. If you will be the ambassador for Jesus among people who do not know him, you will be treated like Jesus. So hardship is difficult. He's going to happen. It's for a purpose. You you know this one, too. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You won't be a mature and complete missionary. You won't be a mature and complete disciple of Jesus if you don't go through hardships and difficulties. Like if we're risk averse and we don't want to suffer and we don't want to have difficulties and we don't want to be afraid, we'll never get to the point of maturity. Your faith 
has to be tested in order to move you to the level of maturity, perseverance. You've got to get beat up a little bit to be toughened up. So you can't avoid fearful things. You can't live your life in a managing risk sort of manner. This is Peter's version of the same truth. Though for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The same way precious metals have to be put into a, what do you put them into? A crucible? Is that scary play? Yeah. Your faith is going to have to be proven genuine by hardships and scary things. All right, last slide. This is a periscope. This is, again, this is a word of encouragement from uh, a middle-aged man. But if in stumbling obedience... One does the things that are fearful and relies and tries to rest in the promises of God and put confidence in, in Jesus, not in ourselves, and willing to be out of control, willing to face possible shame and humiliation, willing even to, f- to face physical harm or danger. And the Lord shows up. And if one develops a pattern over time of obedience you then have faith that operates like a periscope. Okay? You can go up in your present circumstances, even if in the present time you feel afraid and terrified and things are bad and you don't know how you're going to get out of this, but you can go up from where you are and you can look backwards and you can remember how the Lord helped you before, how he delivered you before, how you were an idiot and he helped you, how you were frightened and he rescued you. And then you can spin that thing forward and know he's going to do it again. Only happens if you if you take steps of faith. Okay. And the the last greatest thing with your eye of the faith that you want to see, I've made reference to it already, is that he's coming back. Okay. He will come again in glory. There will be a time where all will be made right. Where never a tear that was shed, a difficulty that was endured, was for naught. And you will hear, could it be? Well done, good and faithful servant. Faith in that final appearing is powerful help in the present. Father in heaven, you are a great and glorious, righteous, just, and mighty God. There is no God but you in heaven above, on earth below. And it is you who fight our battles. It's you who have made a way for us to, to even call on you. It's you who have made us alive when we were dead by Jesus' obedience. 
It's you who give us the Holy Spirit and the promises and give us the ability to believe. We acknowledge that you are above all things and in all things, that you rule over all things. We are fearful and we are proud and we are self-protecting, but we want to lose our lives for your sake, Jesus, and for the gospel. We want to get into a place where we trust you more and more. We rely on your promises, and by the Holy Spirit, we overcome fear with faith because of you and what you've done. We pray in your great name. Amen. Thank you very much.